Hello, and welcome to episode 13 of the Venture Games Podcast. I'm Chris Quaidu, and today I'm happy to introduce my next guest, Maria Salamanca, partner at Unshackled Ventures. How's it going, Maria? It's going great. Thanks for having me. Sure. Thanks for joining me. So to kick things off, it would be great if we could dive into your professional background. Yeah. Uh, happy to. I mean, I'll do like the quick bio snippet of it, but I actually entered venture fairly early into my career. So I got one of the few, I guess, that, that there's not many folks that enter venture in the early days. So I entered venture straight out of college, which is pretty rare. I went to UC Berkeley, um, actually went in there thinking I was going to be pre-law, um, study political science and public policy, fell in love with all things uh, quantitative politics and Berkeley is a pretty quantitative school. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of hard to even get a liberal arts degree without coming out with some stats and econ and some serious math. And so I, I did the, the concentration that it's quantitative political science and, and theory methods. And really, I think it was, I came, I actually grew up in Florida. So very, very far away from all things tech. And when I came to California, I think a lot of my passion was always from day one was on how do I work in a place where there's like macro trends and macro mm -hmm. impacts um, that are upscale and politics was kind of like a really not obvious but it became clear earlier in my career that I was one of those right I definitely knew I, I was not kind of bottoms up type of problem solver and like mm -hmm. the engineer or science world uh, I was definitely more of a top bottom problem solver. And so politics tends to be one of those with all things public policy and, and economics. And it was, you know, I think a lot of the really interesting research that was coming out of Berkeley at the time was at the intersection of just tech and politics and privacy and just a lot of, of the different public opinion behaviors that were coming out of just like this rapidly changing world mm -hmm. post-globalization really. And so Obviously, being in the middle of, of Silicon Valley, fell in love with everything that was going on with tech. And Berkeley at the time was not anywhere near in developing the entrepreneurship ecosystem as Stanford was, but mm -hmm. it was really starting to have some like early folks that were doing really interesting stuff. There was like Hack at Berkeley and a couple of, uh, of really interesting entrepreneurship initiatives led by students. And I was kind of like, you know, I, I did do my little stunt in trying to do like law firm internships, uh, consulting at some of the big consultants. I, I, I did try public finance at Goldman and just didn't really like it um, in, in terms of the culture. Like I was like, I'm going to be one of many in a very large company. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of my summer internships narrowed down that big co was not going to be my option. So I felt like I was doing a lot of narrowing down and not a lot of solving for what I wanted to do. Um, and so I entered my senior year with no plan really of what I was going to do full time, which is very rare for to do. Um, I had obviously had a couple of offers to do full time afterwards from some of like the big banks that I just I wasn't interested. So mm -hmm. I decided that I couldn't do that and went more towards uh, the intersection of public policy and tech. There was a lobbying group that had just gotten started by Zuckerberg and a couple of tech VCs and CEOs called Forward.us. And it was basically the first time that tech world was being outspoken about a public policy issue that was more 
more available to the public than like, you know, deep patent uh, type of public policy or, or privacy law. Uh, it was immigration, which was something that was like very impactful and, and always top of mind for all things on the political rhetoric at the time. This, this was like in 2014. And so I started working with them and did that for a full year. And this was before Zuckerberg launched the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which was going to be where he put all his side project interests for, mm -hmm. for him and his family office. And my job there was to do a lot of different project management, relationship building, fundraising for this immigration lobbying group that was like Ron Conway and Bill Gates. All of them were putting their money behind to lobby Washington. Um, and that's where I met the two founders of, of the fund. Obviously, the, the fund I work at on Shackle Ventures is focused on investing in immigrant founders uh, and entrepreneurs. And they were just starting. They were they had this idea. They um, wanted to bring a third person on board that was going to be the the first, I guess, investment hire that was not a partner. Uh, and that's how I started working in venture. So I got kind of lucky because they just said we want to have someone who's young in their career and is eager to like build, wants to work in a small team. It's at the intersection of policy and tech and a little bit of venture, and you're going to be working on like big problems from like early start. So it was kind of like everything I was looking for in one place. And I got really lucky to find it right out of college. Yeah. So it sounds like you were a particularly good fit for Unshackled, given your background and your interests. But, you know, going from politics to VC is quite uncommon. You know, of course, it's been done before, but there aren't tons of people in the VC world from politics. And so what are some of the skills that you learned that, you know, that help you out? And Obviously, from the standpoint of what you do at Unshackled, you know, it's a little bit more uh, clear, you know, but just generally, do you think that there are some skills that you learned in the political world that are helpful as a VC in general? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I had, I, I got involved with politics when I was still back in Florida and in high school. Um, so I got to work on the Obama campaign back in, in the day I was in Florida. So like, it was really hard not to feel politics in Florida because it's a swing state and mm -hmm. particularly like my family's Latino. So like our phones are blowing up every election <laughs> cycle like crazy. And I think so, so some of the early experiences were all things on organizing. And I think one of the, the hardest things about being an, a campaign organizer or just like starting a campaign from scratch is that unfortunately, uh, and this is kind of changing a little bit more now, Every time a new campaign starts, you're reinventing the wheel all over again, mm -hmm. right? Like you're getting the same voter numbers. You're thinking like what website to build, like how to do your marketing material. Like every campaign has, to, it's kind of like running a startup. Um, and there's so many different moving pieces. There's not like a written book on like how to be a campaign manager. Uh, everyone who becomes a campaign manager kind of falls into it accidentally. And then you've done it enough times that you just kind of keep climbing the ladders being a campaign manager that knows how to do it. And it's kind of like being a serial entrepreneur where it's mm -hmm. just like, look, if you have a six time campaign manager, who's for the most part one, you just know that they know where the skeletons are buried and there's no right way to do it, but they know what's not to do because right. that's the way it goes. Um, I think that kind of just flexibility of building and learning and kind of playing it by year is something you learn a lot in campaigns uh, and grassroots movements as well. You kind of learn the power of like small numbers moving quickly and scrappy and learning a lot, uh, which you do in campaigns, especially now in the digital world where you see the power that 
just messaging could have, whether it's Occupy Wall Street, or Black Lives Matter, or the Bernie campaign, just like how a, a small group of folks can really make a huge impact if they move the right way and organize the correct banner and have a message that really resonates. So that part is a skill set that like, I wish could be more or like better defined, mm -hmm. but it's one that you just kind of build by throwing yourself into like the deep end of just like unstructured environments and building together. And there's like, for the most part, like an end result, right? Some feedback loop, it takes a while, but like you win or lose a campaign and you know, if you did good or you didn't do good, you know what factors went into it. Um, so that's that's kind of uh, an interesting one in the political world. I think with the with the political world, something that's also a skill set you kind of learn is um, you're always selling, um, really. And and a, a lot of what you do in venture and entrepreneurship is selling. Right? If you're a CEO of a company, you're either selling to your customers, you're selling to investors to give your money, you're selling your own employees because you're convincing them either to jump ship to work with you on a crazy idea, to take a pay cut. Like you're always selling. Right. Um, and in politics, you're in a way always doing that, of course, if you're like, especially in, in, in kind of the more person facing roles, like whether it's you're, you're talking to constituents, whether you're talking to, whether you're in a lobbying uh, position, like you're, you're trying to convince people mm -hmm. um, and you have to believe it yourself. And, and so that, that skill set is also super important. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now taking a step back, you know, just talking about Unshackled generally, right? So you have this unique thesis of focusing on immigrant founders um but just more broadly on the firm you know what so what stage do you all focus on are there sectors that you lean towards you know versus others or are you sector agnostic and if you want to just you know sort of round out the description of the thesis a bit more yeah of course so the thesis behind the fund was you know there's a group of folks in this case uh, immigrants who over-index on all things entrepreneurship. So any given year, whenever the statistics come out about Fortune 500 companies or unicorn companies and how many of them were founded by immigrant founders or kids of immigrants, usually that number always falls anywhere between like 40 to 50% mm -hmm. of, of them. Uh, depends the year, but it varies. And we obviously know the United States population is not 40 to 50% immigrants. And mm -hmm. so it is a population that just by numbers over index X and very successful entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship period. Um, and they, this is both in tech. It's also not in tech where you think about all the mom and pop small businesses around big cities and how many of them are owned by immigrants. It's, it's just a part of, of kind of starting fresh in America and immigrants trying to be entrepreneurial and, and kind of reinvent themselves. So the fund was really focused on, there's a population that is incredibly good at being an entrepreneur. And how do we, if we focus on them, which have a lot of upside and give them money and invest in them, like how do how, we can probably also make money as well. But we also understand that because this population is different from everyone else, it obviously has also very specific ways in which we can support it. So as a fund, we want to be the first money in. So what would be the equivalent of your family and friends round? Mm -hmm. But many immigrants, uh, if they don't have a network or they just came to the US, they're not going to have folks that would just give them 500K. Um, and even if they do have families that would give 500K, immigrant families are not the type to be very willing to just be like, here right. you go. We, all the money we came to the US with, you can have it for your startup. So <laughs> yeah, my parents are from uh, Ghana and Jamaica. So, yeah, I'm sure you. if you ask them for 500k, even if they have them, they would not give it to you. Yeah, so, definitely not. <laughs> and so we we want to be a source of capital because that's what venture funds do. 
um, we understand that having a community of, of like-minded peers of entrepreneurs is important because it's just a different journey, right? Um, just how you think about it, schools you go to, how you you're, how you think about hiring, how you think about talent, how you think about being a CEO, all the, everything is just very different. So it's good to have that community of peers that think like you and you can rely on and trust. Um, and then the third one is more on the logistical side of the US immigration system is incredibly complex and, and it is very difficult to navigate on top of navigating a company. And so we have an internal immigration team who supports immigrant founders, um, no matter what visa type it is, no matter what country they were from, no matter what school they went to, and making sure that we can keep them in the United States working on their company full time. Um, our fund, because it's the first check-in, tends to be the smallest type of check. So we will invest up to 400K in a company mm -hmm. um, and super sector agnostic. We really bet behind people and, and just what incredible stuff they've done before and uh, distance traveled, uh, how much they've hustled is, is really what we invest in. And um, most of our companies are, are pre-revenue, pre-product. So they're really early days of ideation and VP building um, and customer discovery. And then as you mentioned before, you know, a disproportionate amount of very, very successful startups have been founded by immigrant founders. Uh, so just, you know, off the top of your head, for those who don't know, you know, could you just name a couple? Yeah, I mean, like, Tesla is one, WhatsApp is one, um, App Dynamics is one, Apple is one. So, <laughs> right. So, There's... you know, these aren't like small, you know, startups. These are some of the largest, you know, most transformative, most impactful um, companies in the world that have been started by immigrant founders. Exactly. So, you know, no, it's definitely not a lot of those, those logos are. Um, for sure known. Uh, and that's just, that's just in tech. Obviously there's uh, a lot more that right. are non-tech like AT&T, Capital One, mm -hmm. eBay, Craft Goods, Kohl's, Google, Panda Express, Pfizer, you know, Pfizer, which is um, the, an incredible pharmaceutical giant that saved us with the Pfizer vaccine. It was, was founded by a German um, so yes, a lot of good names in there. Right. So this isn't some sort of niche thesis. <laughs> It's not quite niche, no. Um, okay, so you know, I know you said you are uh, your firm is sector agnostic, right? But I think you know investors sometimes tend to have sectors that they prefer to, you know, invest in over others. So, are there any sectors that you particularly either lean towards or have just really enjoyed uh, investing in in your time as an investor? Yeah, I think in a cliche way, um, being the youngest and the female on the team, I felt like really into all things consumer. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, ultimately investing is incredibly personal, right? Because you're investing between, like, you know, there's a couple of, of, of folks that come in and pitch you an idea and you have to make the judgment call of they got a chance or they don't. And when you're betting on people, like no matter what people say, it's for sure a very personal thing. Um, and so either it resonates with you and the problem they're trying to solve, the founder's story resonates with you, the approach, their hustle resonates with you. It's it's an incredibly still personal type of decision. Um, there's obviously a lot of logic and numbers behind that mm -hmm. that help you always back it up. But ultimately, a lot of it is is still to, to the gut, um, which is ultimately what a lot of the best asset managers do. But I fell a lot into all things consumer. Obviously, I think because I care about what I talked earlier, just like big macro trends on what impacts humans, like at scale, our society, 
um, consumer facing products. Um, and that, that's a, a variety of things. So I care a lot about consumer digital health, um, education, financial technology. Uh, I've done a lot of, of vets and, and community led products uh, for female health, for male health, for hormonal health, for um, a couple of consumer social bets. So like, you know, what's the next Facebook and how we organize and how we come together and how we entertain and create as, as a society, a couple of those bets um, also, but yeah, a little bit more on the consumer side, at least for me. And then geographically, do you all invest just in US-based companies or do you invest internationally as well? Um, we, for the most part, so I think for us, the question comes down to, can we be like really helpful? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously our immigration platform is very built for people who want to immigrate to the United States and or have already immigrated. Um, our network and our community is heavily US based. Uh, and obviously our own personal networks on, on customers and talent that we can introduce founders to are still fairly US based. So I think we generally fall in the majority of our portfolios for sure US focus as a market um, and teams tend to be based, but we have uh, a couple uh, multiple investments that are not U.S. based, but it was very like kind of case by case. of do we know folks in this market? Can we make introductions? Can we be helpful? And for the majority of those companies, they also have a couple of team members, of founding team members mm-hmm. in the U.S. and then some abroad. And so uh, there's usually a reason why, but I, I would say we're more U.S. based than not. And what are some of the geographies where either you have invested in or you know, one of the companies in your portfolio serves, you know, an international market? Yeah, we have one that is Oxio, which is carrier as a service. Um, so just think telecoms, uh, they're focused in Latin market. Uh, we have two companies focused in, in the African continent, uh, one in the logistics uh, sector and one in data and finance sector. Those are like probably three that stand out and, and kind of being definitely not uh, US-based. The, the Africa ones are Sote, the other one is Juni, on um, the Latin basics, Oxio. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then, you know, obviously over the last several years, the geopolitical environment has been uh, somewhat volatile, right? And there has been some focus, you know, at least at periods of time on just the immigration landscape, you know, and policy and those sorts of things. And so given your funds focus, you know, was that a particularly like turbulent time for you all to navigate or was it sort of like business as usual? I think it was, it leans more surprisingly more on the business as usual. Mm -hmm. Um, So at this point we've been through Obama, Trump, Biden administration, a couple of them. Uh, And so we, we've been through what could be probably the best and the worst all, all since the founding of the fund. Obviously, I think one, one thing that is clear is when immigration comes to the front and center of our you know, political rhetoric, there's a very particular type of immigrant that most people are thinking about. Mm-hmm. And it tends to you know, be certain countries, it tends to be certain skill level, it tends to be certain socioeconomic uh, background. And a lot of immigration's limits have been 
basically focused on that. I think obviously it's it's harder because coming from um, the Trump administration so much was just like anti-immigrant period. But when you think about the policy itself, it's yes, it's gotten harder for everyone, but it has particularly been much more difficult for certain types of immigrants. Mm -hmm. Not fortunately or unfortunately, you know, our founders tend to be fairly high skilled, right? Because they have to be technical. You have to be fairly technical to start a startup. And that means they're somewhat exceptional in a variety of ways, but the types of visas that we go for tend to be different types of visas. Um, and so we didn't necessarily see a decrease uh, on our ability to be able to get our founders visas or them being able to transfer visas around to their companies from their old companies. But I think the the difference was that we mostly saw was inconsistency. I mean, there was a couple of years there were like the the laws were changing mm -hmm. every single day and lawyers themselves were so confused that you just kind of ended up with a big backlog of like, let's wait to see where we land on what, like what form to fill out for what, because it's changing every day. And then yeah. as, you, as you're actually evaluating investments, are you like assessing things like, you know, risks related to immigration or risks related to you know, a founder getting their visa or those sorts of things as well? Not really. Um, we don't. Mm -hmm. I think because we haven't ever had an issue with getting founders a visa, really. I'd like, we, we, we also like evaluate the investment process totally independently of, mm -hmm. of that. Um, we get to that decision. The team who handles investment is a different team than the one that handles immigration. But that's it. That's yeah, a good yeah, yeah. I'm Makes not sense. a lawyer. I should, <laughs> I should not be dealing with that. And our immigration attorney, uh, should not be so <laughs> you never uh, know they could be good from, i think he wants to he definitely likes to sit on those meetings but yeah. he's not gonna get to do <laughs> some of that so but he you know we we obviously evaluate the company if, if we like the team if we like mm -hmm. the company we're going to do absolutely everything we can on the immigration front to make it happen so investment process is it's the most important one um and once we commit we commit and and nothing really changes that like we know that Look, immigration is a long-term game, so mm -hmm. we might not be able to figure in the next six months, but like next three years we can. So we're we're patient. Like venture should be patient capital anyway. Yeah. So we got a long time to figure it out. So that was actually gonna be my next question, just on and this is my last one on the process, right? But I just find this so fascinating because it is quite unique, right? But how long is a typical process for you all to help one of your founders yeah. I guess complete the immigration process? Oh man, it totally depends. Every founder is so different because every country mm -hmm. is so different. Yeah. If you're from Canada and Mexico, there's like a TN available to you. If you mm -hmm. have a PhD, you can do an exceptional visa. You can, there's all kinds of, you know, we, we've filed over 12 different types of visas mm -hmm. now. And I think we've done like 200 filings already. And so it's very different. Uh, I think the we have a founder that's been through six visas. We have a founder that's been through wow. eight different types of visas all the way until they became U.S. citizens or, yeah. or permanent residents. So it varies versus there's some where we can very quickly get them there. Um, mm -hmm. There's no like right number yeah. of either visas or time. Process wise in terms of investment, like the investment happens and the, the immigration stuff happens, begins. Oh, I um, see. Okay. But yeah. Mm -hmm. We don't okay. wait until immigration is fixed to solve. Yeah. To ride the money. No. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. Okay. So, you know, I know that you were a founding member of Latinx VC. 
So mm -hmm. what is Latinx BC and why did you co-found it? And what do you, you know, what's sort of your role there today? Yeah, still on the board, <laughs> still very actively. We're still, mm -hmm. we're still like a baby organization. Uh, we did, you know, we're kind of like the peer organization to Black BC yeah. and All Race. Black BC focuses on, on Black investors, All Race focuses on female investors. Um, and I think all three groups kind of uh, came to be around a similar timeline. Um, so All Race was very timely and came around the Me Too movement. Um, a lot of me too type of news came out from a couple of funds a lot of female investors who now were you know senior roles uh, started to speak out and came together to make sure that the industry changed it and how female investors um retain and succeed in the industry uh black vc followed shortly after that and said obviously black venture capitalists are a very small number mm -hmm. i think it's less than three percent you might know this number better but it's it's very very low yeah. um and they also kind of were incredibly important to have for the industry when all things went down with Black Lives Matter and, and 2020. And they as an organization kind of really did a good job at, at just making sure that the things that we, we as a industry haven't talked about are talked about. Um, and then the last one was Latinx CC, which came shortly after Black BC. And, and, and for us, it was it was an interesting one where we look very different across all of our members. Like the NX is so largely, mm -hmm. including of everything, we're different colors, different religions, different continents. Right? Like you got Spain and Brazil, who are always the question mark if we include <laughs> them or not. But we do. We're more inclusive than not. Um, and then we were just like, look, there's not. It, our numbers are definitely terrible. Like mm -hmm. when we look at the, the statistics were usually under 1%. And if you actually do rounding, we end up rounding down to zero. Wow. So we're basically a rounding error mm -hmm. in, in the statistics of how many of us there are in the industry. And I think for us as an organization, we're like, you know, we don't know if we're really 0% of the industry <laughs> as a rounding error, or people just don't even know who we are because yeah. we all look so different. And we think that it's important for us to have a place. As an organization, we have very similar kind of goals as, as the other two. Mm -hmm. One, we want to get more folks, Latinx folks, into venture, into investing roles, uh, big funds, late funds, pre-seed, seed, growth, you name it. We want to have more of us there. We know it matters. Uh, we know it matters in terms of who gets funding in the entrepreneurship. We know it matters in terms of how venture operates. We want to retain that. So we do a lot of programming around making sure the folks that are already in venture, we can keep them, that we can get them promoted, that we, they can have a path to partnership. Um, and then the last part of it is more on the investment like LP side. So how do we, for the folks that want to start their own funds, um, how do we get them connected to institutional capital, endowments, foundations, pension funds to help them raise their own funds in case that they want to go on their own? Those are like the three core pillars of what we do. And obviously a pillar that just uh, brings it all together is community. We just want to have a place where we can be together and just not feel like outsiders. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And then just what are some of the more like tangible impacts actually that you've seen, you know, that Latinx VC has helped, uh, helped cause? Yeah. I mean, I think for us, our, our, Big priorities right now. Um, one is the fellowship program, which is it's a fellowship that we're running for folks that have like 
up to seven years of work experience um, in tech and finance and high growth startups and big tech, you name it, uh, who've had like a, a successful career thus far and are considering entering or breaking into venture. So we run a 10 week program where we really just double down and focus on getting them placed into venture roles. That has been a core focus. I think another core focus has been in our, our mentorship program. So matching existing Latinx investors with uh, the right mentorship to kind of help them reach that next level of on their professional career. Got it. And then, you know, VC, unlike a lot of other uh, industries, I would say is much more sort of like apprenticeship or mentorship based. And so why do you think it's so important to be a mentor or, you know, to facilitate these sorts of mentorship programs, uh, you know, especially in the context of the statistics that we uh, cited before. Right. Well, I mean, it's like who you mentor tends to be also particularly personal, right? Like mm -hmm. who you connect with and you're like, I'm going to take you under my wing and I'm just going to make you future me. Like <laughs> it is highly unlikely that a white male sees someone that doesn't look like them. is like, I see me and you very rarely. Right. It, it's just like, it's the way humans work, unfortunately. And um, there's already such weird dynamics with mentor mentorship that it's hard for females to get mentor. Yeah. Like there's, there's all kinds for like folks of color to, you know, reach out and ask for help or it's it just, it's so um, already kind of stacked against folks of, of color and, and females that a lot of these organizations are really trying to build that out, which is like, before you kind of go out to get, you know, try to get a mentor out of this partner that you've like never talked to and is that has literally nothing in common with you, whether it's school, background, family, sports you play, right? Like you have nothing to talk about. So before you go to that, why don't we connect you with someone that you can relate to more, right? Whether it's your invested in interesting of the same sectors, you grew up in the same place, your family had some of the same weird costs, like, you know, just like, you name it, just like different stuff that you can relate to matters when you have that mentee-mentor relationship. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, this diversity issue has been a challenge in the industry, you know, basically forever. And, you know, increasingly, especially last year, you know, it seems like a bunch of folks, you know, started thinking this was a pretty serious problem. So, you know, started blogging about it, started, you know, creating some programs to, uh, to, to help make changes in the industry, right? And, you know, I think some of them have stuck around, but I think, you know, some of them mysteriously have gotten a bit quieter. Um, so, you know, overall, my question is, do you feel as if there are enough people in the industry who truly want it to change where we can see significant changes going forward? Or do you think, you know, the recent uh, increase in trust is going to be sort of uh, temporary? I think like in general, when, when it, when it happens in the form of a movement, like most movements will like die down. Mm -hmm. um, and that's that's its natural progression of of anything that is disruptive and, and comes quickly and, and leaks quickly. Um, so it's easy to kind of feel that it's it's gone. I think you know we try to focus at least in organizational. I personally, I try to focus on kind of what what is changing 
slow but steadily. Like mm-hmm. I care so much more about changing slow and steadily than what's changing drastically suddenly mm-hmm. and quickly. And then I can't keep track of it. It's just more of the fundamentals, which is like there's still few numbers, but more and more so the ones that get to stick around are making partner. Um, and because they're making partner, they're they're you know they're getting money, they're being able to support other funds, other investors, other entrepreneurs. Uh, there is a percentage of folks, even if it's just a smaller percentage of what the big, you know, group was who did in a way, maybe woke up or really became mm-hmm. passionate about this that are going to stay true to this and the thick and thin. And so we have like, even if it's just two or three more white males in significant positions of power who care more than they did before like that's when because i think that that is sticking consistent mm-hmm. and that they're not going away anytime soon and so i i, I think it's it's just one of those that slow and steady progress is, is going to get us there and we're moving in the right direction now if the slow and steady just stops and stagnates then i will really start worrying if we mm-hmm. start seeing those at the partner level who have made their wins not give back or just not, you know, just peace out or drop out, like do whatever it is that they want to do. Like, yes, I'll start a worry because like every win is a win for the community. And so those matter. Okay. And then just generally speaking, right. Why do you think more VCs have not been as outspoken about these issues, especially when behind closed doors, you know, you have these conversations with them. Obviously, everyone's in favor of, you know, making the industry better. Um, but why do you think more people haven't actually spoken out about it? I think some of it has to do with their very, like, uncomfortable conversations. And everyone likes to think that it's happening elsewhere, but not under their own, like, you know, fund or firm or house. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, it also just comes down to, like, Investors just care about such different things all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's, it's such a small industry that, right. Like if you go to the average person, like there tend to be single double digit, like issue voters, right. Like people vote on women's rights, people vote on gay rights, people vote on pro-life. They, like there's things that drive so much value. And there's things that overwhelmingly a lot of VCs care about that, like, they're putting a lot of money behind, for example, climate change. And it's something that for some reason, it's a good number of like representatives of, of climate change um, folks are in venture. And it's it's just one of those that I think it's also hard when, when you have distance and when you think it's something far from you or that you don't relate to, or it's not associated with your like unique value set, like it's not a priority. Mm-hmm. It's like, I wish like it's, it's, shitty to think about right that like okay like having female included and folks of color included is not a priority but if if you think of it from like a political perspective of like one or two issues that every human cares about unfortunately like yeah not every human being cares about climate change Mm -hmm. and we just gotta have like hopefully a good combination of enough people caring about the right issues but yeah i don't i don't think i don't think we have enough of us in the industry caring about the issues that like we need people caring about. Okay. And then, you know, sort of as a concluding question, Maria, you are a young partner in VC, you know, so you've had a good amount of success so far, but looking forward, 
what are some of the things that you want to accomplish and what are some of the major changes that you want to see in the industry and actually uh, make in the VC industry? Yeah. I mean, I think like so many folks are you know, excited because like you made it a partner, you're like made it. Um, but the way I see it is that like, you don't know if you're any good into venture until you wrote checks and 10 years from now, you know, if your like companies are still alive or not. And so for me, becoming a partner is just like the beginning of no, like understanding if I'm any good at this or not. And so I feel very early still in my career mm -hmm. um, because unfortunately it is now that I have check writing ability to like say I like that company and I don't need anyone else to, to like it else or I don't need to convince anyone else for me to invest. And so that part is obviously part of it. Like give or take depending how hot the economy is uh, seven to 10 years is what it takes to know if you've mm -hmm. done any, any good at, at your job in venture. So I at least know I have that much in what I would want to, to stick around in venture for more time. And I think for me, like, it's one of those that because I, I see myself and my career as a long-term bet on, like, I'm going to be here around for a while. I need to make sure that this industry continues to also progress and move along. And so I care a lot about having more of my peers just be here with me. Like I, I do not want the venture that I entered that was overwhelmingly male and white to continue to be that. So I kind of spend a lot of my external energy on making sure that like as an industry, like if I were to ever leave it 10 years plus from now, like at least it's better off. Yeah, no, I agree. I think that's a great point. You know, I am with you. I, I hope some of these changes that we're starting to see move in the right direction actually continue and that the industry is you know much better in these regards uh several years out than it is today um yeah but i mean like i think just getting even a couple of us right female folks of color into like something like the midas list that by itself is oh yeah point, right um, that, that's another great point actually that would be i don't know the data off the top of my head but it would be interesting to see you know what percent of midas list investors every year belong to some of these groups uh, I would be incredibly curious, but my 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 guess is it's it's, it's single digits. Yeah, that. Uh, <laughs> I I agree too. Especially and if you like cut off like like U.S. only, right? Yeah, like, I mean, we're not going to include the international world here and count it as. Anything. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. Um, it's not indicative indicative of scale that all all groups of people can be equally uh, capable investors. Exactly. No, <laughs> oh, for sure, but. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the numbers, let me know. I feel like we could uh, ask someone there to, to pull them. It will do. All right, Maria, thanks for taking the time. Of course, Chris, thank you.